a scenario for you to start us off. What if I came to you and I was desperate and I said, I need to borrow some money. But the amount of money that I needed to borrow was going to mean that you had to empty out your entire savings, all of it, perhaps even dig into your super. Basically, you weren't going to have anything left other than if you're lucky enough to be working, you would have your weekly income. But I said, I'm desperate and I'll, I'll pay you back in four weeks. That's when I'm going to get the money. But right now, I don't have anything and I need this money or it's my life. Would you give me the money? Would you empty out your savings? Would you empty out everything just for me in my state of desperation? In this passage today that we have just read out, God is asking his people to be totally open-handed with their neighbors. God is asking his people to be radically open-handed with their resources. We'll look into this a bit more, but I mean, just on surface level, he's asking them to give everything in a sense. It could be if someone asked someone else for amount of money that would have required that person to empty out everything, God is saying, be open-handed. Don't be tight-fisted. But the difference between what we see in this passage and the scenario I gave you first, if I came to you and said, hey, I'm desperate, please lend me some money, I'll pay you back, trust me, is that in my scenario, I'm asking you to trust me. In this scenario for the people of Israel, God is not asking the one who's about to give the loan to trust the one who's receiving the loan. He's not asking that. He's asking the people to be open-handed because they trust in him, not because they trust in a person and whether they're going to pay back. He's saying, be open-handed because you trust in me. When we trust God as our all-satisfying provider, we can actually be open-handed with our generosity. And this is yet again, a wonderfully liberating thing that would be totally different from everyone else in the world that clings so tightly to possessions and money the ability to be free from that, the ability to be open-handed with your money. And you can do that whether you have a little or a lot. So the main point of this passage is that God desires that we be generous with our resources to both reveal His generous character and glorify Him as a provider. That's the point. God desires that we be generous with our resources as a sign of his generous character and to glorify him as our provider. And this passage flows on from what we looked at last week, which was the idea of God's purpose in our giving. And we saw that through a vertical lens where last week we saw God desires us to give these offerings to him in order to enjoy his presence. It's this vertical relationship. Now this is the horizontal relationship here. What God desires us to do with our resources when it comes to giving to our neighbors, when it comes to giving to brothers and sisters and people in the community. 
So as we look at this passage in verses 1 to 3, if you do have your Bibles, um, keep them open. Uh, In verses 1 to 3, we read, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. So this is about God's requirement for uh, those who have lent money to people who are in debt. And the law here explains that at the end of every seven years, the people in Israel are to completely release other Israelites from their debt. Now, the word release means the cancellation of debt. This isn't like a temporary release. He's not saying give them a year of freedom so they don't have to make any repayments or so they go and take a holiday or something. He's saying actually in the seventh year, the debt is cancelled. It's completely cancelled. And this is quite a radical law. I mean, imagine if someone still owed a substantial amount of money or time in the sixth year and the seventh year came about, this is saying they're completely free. They're completely released from that. It's huge. It's saying something quite extraordinary about God's character and his desire for the poor and the vulnerable in society to be taken care of and not burdened, not burdened by huge debt. And the fact that this happens on the seventh year is all to do with these seven-year cycles that the people of Israel were in, which were, they, are, they are rooted in the pattern of God's creation. So you remember in the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, there are six days where he works, and then on the seventh day he rests. And then the life of his people Israel is rooted in this six plus one rhythm. So that's why they have six days of working, and then they have this seventh Sabbath day of rest. And there are other areas of their life where we see this six plus one rhythm. And one particular is in how they cultivate the land. So you have this idea in the law. We see this in Leviticus 25, where God actually says, right, you are to work the land for six years. And then in the seventh year, you're to give the land a rest. So do no cultivating, don't harvest, you give the land a complete rest. So not only do you get a rest, but the land actually gets a rest. And just like the Sabbath day ceasing from work, if you remember from last year, we went through the Sabbath and one of the principles of the Sabbath is that to actually stop working. And for us, uh, I think we should have practices on a Sabbath day, whenever it is for you, where you actually intentionally stop and it's a bit of a disruption to your schedule. Like you don't do those tasks that you need to do because you intentionally stop and it feels a little bit uncomfortable. But the point of that is because it should reorient us to trust in God that even if we don't do that task, the world's not going to fall apart. Everything's going to be okay because God, who is sovereign, And calling us to rest is in control. So therefore we stop and we wait. And that requires trust. And you can imagine for these people living in Israel in an agrarian society where if basically you have land and that's how you survive is you keep um, your, you get all of your resources from your land and to actually stop for a whole year to do no, to not have a harvest that year, to not cultivate the land that requires an awful a lot an awful amount of trust in the Lord that he will still provide and in Leviticus 25 
in verses 20 and 21. God actually addresses this when he talks about this and he says, If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? You can, that's a sensible question to ask God, right? Like if, hey, if you're saying we can't do anything for a whole year, how are we going to eat? And God's answer is, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. So he's saying, don't, you don't even have to worry about the year after the seventh year. If you trust me and don't work, you leave the land, I will command such a blessing that you'll have so much resources in the sixth year that you won't have to do any harvesting for the year after as well. Just trust me. So you can see there is this clear idea of the seventh day or the seventh year being this time of rest and release and rejuvenation. And that all requires trust in the Lord. And that is the basis of this law as we come back into Deuteronomy. That's the basis of this law here when it comes to releasing people from debt. So it, re it provides rest and relief for those who were in debt, but it also requires trust from that person who is going to say, hey, I know you owe me a bajillion dollars, whatever the term is, 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel, but I'm going to set you free from that and you don't have to pay back a single bit. It would require an awful amount of trust for that person to do that and still believe that they will be provided for. I mean, they'd lent out all of this money. You expect it to come back. That's going to be their income. It would take a huge amount of trust in this God who says, hey, I will provide for you. And in verses four to six of this passage, God addresses this where he reminds the people that he will bless them. So in these verses, God says, I will take care of you. I will command such a blessing. So he says, um, there will be no poor among you for the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to do all this commandment that I command you for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. This is God reiterating to them and saying, hey, it's all going to be okay. I'm going to provide for you. I brought you into this promised land or I'm about to bring you in. I'm telling you to live this way, which requires trust. Believe that I will provide for you. You won't go hungry so long as you faithfully follow me. So the point here is that God requires the people to be generous, to be open-handed with their resources, precisely because he promises to give to them. He promises to provide for them. It would make no sense. It would clearly show that they have not grasped the reality of this God who freed them from Egypt and brought them in if they were tight-fisted with their resources. It would show that they do not trust in the Lord. They don't trust him to provide for them. And so on the basis of the people's faithfulness to God, he says, there will be no poor among you. There's not going to be any poor in the land of Israel, which is his way of reiterating again that they, they don't have to worry that they will be provided for. Now, if we move on to the next few verses in verses 7 and 11, God elaborates on the law of cancelling debts. And he says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor. Now, you may notice there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there, right? Like God just clearly says, there's not going to be any poor among you. Next line. Oh, by the way, if there's someone poor, here's what you are to do. And even in verse 11, if you notice, 
God says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. There's always going to be poor. So he says, there's not going to be any poor among you. Oh, and there'll never cease to be any poor among you. Why the contradiction here? Well, clearly, if you look at verse 4 and 5, where God says, there will be no poor among you. He says, verse 5, If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. So if the people lived faithfully, following Yahweh, following his commands, then they would be blessed. But we know that this did not happen. We know through the story of Israel that they slipped in. They were just in constant cycles of sin and then crying out in their sin for God to save them and he saves them. And then they just fall right back into sin again. They are unfaithful and they're in these cycles of unfaithfulness. So God here in this first stage of saying, um, there will be no poor among you is God saying, if you are faithful to me, this is the picture. This is the picture of the community of my people when they are faithful to me. When you live in the way that I instruct, things will go well. All things will go well for you. And of course, God knew this before the foundation of the world. So therefore, in verse 7, he writes and gives instructions for what to do when there is poor in the land, because he knows as a result of the people, the um, Israelites' uh, sinfulness, then all of these unjust societal structures will be in place where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because they are not living faithfully. And so therefore he's saying, this is what you are to do when this happens because you will fall into sin. So knowing that the people will be faced with poor and vulnerable people, God is then commanding his people in that situation to be generous and give abundantly to the people so that God's own compassion would be demonstrated among his people since his people are to live in a way that would reflect his character. And he uses this to cut right to the heart of people's motives in this situation. Notice um, in this section in verses 7 to 11, he warns them not to harden their hearts, but to be open-handed and give whatever is required. And just in case someone was to ask to borrow money from someone, a substantial amount, and they knew it was the sixth year. So the person who was asked to give up money knew, oh man, it's the sixth year. If I lend this, it's gone. Seventh year is right around the corner. I'm going to have to cancel it. And God is saying to them, don't have a wicked thought in your heart to say, oh, the seventh year is coming. I'm not going to loan. God's actually saying, he says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the year of release is near and your eye look with evil or it says grudgingly, but the word is evil on your brother. He's saying, uh, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So he says, don't even think about the fact that the seventh year is right around the corner and you're not going to get any of this money back. Be generous, be open-handed with your resources because you trust in me. I will provide. I will provide for you. I created the heavens and the earth. I just set you free from Egypt, the great power of the day. I brought you out of there. I showed all of my miraculous powers and I'm about to bring you into this promised land. Of course, I'm going to provide. I rain bread down from heaven. I can give you resources. So don't cling to it. Don't be tight-fisted. 
And in the last scenario in verses 12 to 18, we see this even more. We see God's compassionate character demonstrated when he gives this situation of when a fellow Israelite sells themselves to a family in order to work as a slave. And again, this is tied to the seventh year. So for slaves that would sell themselves, so it's not like the transatlantic slave trade of people going against their will. It's actually people who fall into debt and they have to sell themselves and they work for someone as sort of a laborer for a time. And if that happens in the seventh year, not only other people to let that slave go free, but notice verse 14. God says, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So this is amazing. Here God says to these people, these slaves, who have really little to no rights in that kind of society. And then God is speaking to the owners and he says, not only are you to let them go free in this seventh year, but you are to furnish them liberally. You are to make sure that you don't just kick them out onto the street, but they actually have a sustainable fresh start. They can actually survive now. So you're to furnish them with whatever they need so that they can then be cared for and have a sustainable life beyond this and not just perpetuate the cycle of then having to sell themselves off to another family. This is extraordinary. And just as a side point buried in this passage here, you'll notice right at the end uh, from verse 16, this is a side point here to do with our slavery to the Lord. You'll notice that um, in verse 16, God gives this concession and sort of says, but if it gets to the seventh year and the slave says, you know what? I actually love my master. He cares for me. He provides for me. I have food. I have shelter. I actually want to serve him forever. And so God says, if that happens, if you actually realize that your master is a wonderful, loving and caring master, then you can serve him forever. And they take this all and they basically brand them to say this slave belongs to the master forever. And it's this incredible picture of genuine slavery where we as slaves and we will all be slaves. We will either be slaves to sin or we'll be slaves to Christ. And it's this picture of when we as slaves find and realize that our master is not a harsh slave driver. He actually cares for us. He gives us status. He gives us rights. He gives us shelter and provision. And so we say, of course, I'm going to serve him. And this is why the apostles refer to themselves as slaves. Paul constantly refers to himself as a slave of Christ. It's the kind of slavery that makes all of the money in this world, all of the great jobs that you could dream of seem like garbage in comparison to serving our Lord Jesus Christ. So God here leaves this concession in the seventh year for those who genuinely want to serve their masters, who don't actually want to leave. And it's this beautiful picture of how we as slaves actually enjoy. We want to be branded with his name. We want to serve him forever because he is good. He is a loving father. He's the kind of 
slave master who calls us sons, who we get to address him as our father. That's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Now, if we come back into the passage, we've clearly seen God's desire for open-handed generosity in the community. And this should come about because the people desire to reflect God's generous character and because they trust in Him. They trust in His ability to provide for all of their needs so they can freely give. They can be open-handed, not tight-fisted. Now, to help this sink in, I want to finish by looking at just three quick questions. Firstly, why God requires open-handed generosity? Secondly, where this comes from? And thirdly, what it is ultimately pointing to? So a why, where, and what? Why does God require it? Where does it come from? What is it ultimately pointing to? The first question, why does God require open-handed generosity? We've seen that it's clearly there to demonstrate their trust in the Lord. So rather than clinging to resources and demonstrating that they don't actually trust because they're clinging so tightly, they're not sure that God will provide, God is asking them to be open-handed so as to show that they trust in Him. And the biggest takeaway for us is that open-handed generosity glorifies God. It magnifies Him. It makes Him look good when we are open-handed and generous. When his people are generous, not only with their money, but with their time, other resources, this brings glory to God, especially when this generosity comes out of a little rather than a lot. It magnifies the Lord when we are totally liberal and open-handed with our giving toward others, when it comes from a deep trust that he will provide. And when we know that we are giving, not being irresponsible and just throwing money away, but doing it when we know that this will glorify the Lord, it magnifies him because it shows that we trust that he will provide. So to give an example of this, imagine there are three children who are given $5 each to buy essential school supplies. And they go off and as they're walking off, these three children are confronted by one guy who is totally desperate. And he says, I need money. I need all of the money you've got. I'm in a desperate situation. I really need it or I'm going to die. And the first child says, but my dad's going to kill me if I give this money away. I know he's hard. He's going to kill me if I give this money away. And I have to, like you're saying, you're going to die. I'm going to die if I give this money away and I don't get the essential supplies. So he doesn't give it. The second child says, ah, my dad's also going to kill me, but you really look like you're in trouble and I really don't want to. I'm, I'm not going to get this $5 again, but I feel like I should give it to you. But then before he takes it, this third child says, oh, you know what, of course you can have it. Uh, like, yeah, it was for, I needed this money for something essential, but my dad's going to give me more. He's always told me to be generous with my money, especially when there's someone in need. So of course, here, have it. In fact, I can go back to my dad and get more. I know that he'll provide for me whenever I'm doing something that's going to honor him for people who are in need. And out of that scenario, of course, which one magnifies the parent more? the two tight-fisted ones. So you could totally understand. We can probably relate to them. 
But it really magnifies the parent to have this child who says, of course, this is a worthy cause. Of course, you can have it. And I know that I'm still going to get my essential supplies. My dad's going to provide for me. And that's, that's what God ultimately wants. He desires us to be open-handed because of our complete trust in Him and His ability to provide for us so we can be free and liberal with our giving. It doesn't have a hold on us because God has a hold on us and He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And this seems to be what gripped the early church. If you remember in the book of Acts, this seems to be what really gripped the early church when we read in chapter 2 that they sold their possessions and belongings and they distributed it to whoever had need. Now, this is not advocating for some sort of socialist regime where no one's allowed private property, but what it is saying is that people were so gripped by what God had done in Jesus Christ, by the generosity that they've seen, that all of a sudden, these people were selling their possessions. They were totally open-handed. No one was tight-fisted. And they were distributing it so that everyone was taken care of because they had this trust. I think they would have totally understood, even though it's a bit anachronistic, uh, as in they didn't have the book of Romans yet. But in Romans 8, Paul says, if God did not withhold his only son, but freely gave him up for us, how will he not give us all things? And I'm sure that the early church clearly knew that because they had the testimony of the apostles they had seen what had happened when people believe in Jesus Christ and they knew God didn't withhold his own son. So of course we can give. We know that he's going to give us everything that we need so we can be open-handed with our resources. They were so gripped by the generosity of God and what he had done. And this leads us to then where does this come from? This, this kind of generosity, this radical generosity, it can only come as a product of grace. It can only come as God's grace works within us. I mean, just like think, think about the kind of things that we have seen in here. Have you ever, I've never seen anyone like this, apart from someone who's probably totally delusional in society who has just lost touch with reality and is just giving everything away, but in an irresponsible way. To actually be this open-handed and say, you know, I know I'm never going to get this money back, but have it, have it. I don't, I don't even need it. I don't need the money. I know my father will provide for me. This can only come as a supernatural product of God's grace. Our generosity only comes when it is a fruit of God's grace in our lives. Now, I think the problem for us is that we often do not understand the full extent of God's grace in our lives because we have a very high view of ourselves and a very low view of sin and therefore not a high enough view of God. We don't understand the full extent of God's grace because we simply think far too highly of ourselves. And this is why the question always comes in of, you know, why doesn't God save everyone when the better question is, why does God save anyone? He doesn't need to. We've totally rejected him. We've totally turned away. We live our lives just ignoring this God who gives us everything and who calls us to turn to him. He doesn't need to save anyone. 
yet we have such a, a, a high view of ourselves and a low view of God that we don't understand the extent of our sin and our rejection. And so therefore, we don't think that our sin and rejection of God Almighty is all that bad. And we rob ourselves of understanding the extent of God's grace in our lives. We don't like to accept the idea that we have offended God in such a way that it would require Him to send His perfect Son to hang on a cross in excruciating and agonizing and humiliating fashion because of our sin. That's very offensive to all of us to think that, wow, it was my sin that required that of God. But if and when we do understand our sin before a holy God, then we can truly understand the extent of His grace and His generosity in this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. The kind of generosity that flows out of this, that flows out of understanding this is the kind of love in action that we read about in this passage where people are open-handed with their generosity, the kind of love in action that gripped the early church. There was so astounded by this generosity. It's why in Luke chapter 7, if you remember the story of Jesus and the sinful woman, where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house, and then there's this sinful woman who comes along, likely a, a prostitute of society, and she comes along and she is weeping at his feet, and her tears are so much that she is able to take her hair and wipe his feet with her hair. And she anoints him with oil and perfume. And Jesus takes this sinful woman who everyone in ancient Israel, definitely the Pharisees would have never associated with, would have never allowed to come so close to them. And Jesus actually holds her up as this poster child of what God's grace can do. And he says to Simon the Pharisee, when I entered, you did not kiss me, you did not greet me, you didn't anoint me with oil, yet this woman has not stopped doing this. And he says her sins, which are many, he recognizes her sin, they are forgiven, for she loves much. And Jesus says, whoever is forgiven little, loves little. If you don't understand what you have been forgiven of, you'll love little. You will not be open-handed, but when you do understand how much you have been forgiven, when you understand how much you have offended God, oh, His grace comes in and it overflows within you to be totally generous, totally liberal. When you understand that as much as you have sinned against Him, His love has cast that sin as far as the east is from the west so that you can approach Him with boldness. Radical open-handed generosity only comes when we truly grasp the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Lastly, what is this pointing to as we finish? These laws around open-handed generosity are ultimately pointing back to the generosity of God in Christ. That's what they are pointing to. These laws around giving revolve around this seven-year cycle, right? We remember the seven-year cycle, which is based on God's seventh-day rest, which we now actually wait for as followers of Jesus. And in this passage, we know that the seventh year becomes the year when debts are cancelled. When everything is 
uh, liberated and set free. Debts completely cancelled. Now, the ultimate liberation from these seven-year cancellations was this thing called the Jubilee year. And if you follow along with me, the Jubilee year was this thing where there would be seven lots of these seven years. So you had 49 years. And then in the 50th year, there would be this Jubilee year where everything would be liberated. Everything would be set free and actually returned to its original owner. And it would happen on the Day of Atonement. So in Leviticus 25, we read about this. And you remember the Day of Atonement is recognizing the day when the blood of the lamb was spread over the doorposts in Egypt. And so God passed over and saved his people because of the blood of the lamb foreshadowing the blood of Christ. And on the Day of Atonement, we read, the trumpet is sounded and liberty is proclaimed throughout the land to everyone. Each of you shall return to his property and to his clan. So land was restored. People were forgiven. Debts were canceled. Slaves set free to return home. Now, if we go almost a thousand years, over a thousand years after this, to the ministry of Jesus, and he comes along in his first sermon in Nazareth. We read about this in uh, the Gospel of Luke particularly, and Jesus, his first sermon, he reads from the book of Isaiah, and he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the Jubilee year. That's the year. So Jesus comes along and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to announce the year of the Lord's favor, to announce this Jubilee year where everything is set free and returned to its original owner. So Jesus comes along and he says, the true fulfillment of this year of Jubilee is here because I'm the one who restores people to their original owner. I'm the one who cancels debts. I'm the one. I become the payment so that your debt is totally cancelled. This seven-year practice of cancelling debts was pointing to the freedom that we as debtors have when God cancels our debt in Jesus Christ. And this open-handed generosity that extends horizontally, it must flow out of this vertical relationship, this realization of what God has done in Christ. That's where our generosity comes from and you can only have this true open-handed generosity when you are confronted by the radical grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can have it is if you are so confronted by the generosity of God in Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a moment now to reflect upon this before we take the Lord's Supper. This um, meal that we take uh, for those who have turned away from their life of sin and who are following Jesus. Uh, this is a picture of that generosity from God. The juice, symbolic of the blood of Christ that was poured out as He hung there on the cross because of our sin. And the bread, symbolic of His body, hung to be mocked, to be scorned, 
not least of all, to take the wrath of God upon him. And we see that picture of generosity. And when we see that, we can be totally open-handed with everything because we know he didn't withhold his own son. He freely gave him up. So we know he will provide for us. We know he will. We can trust in that. 